Welcome back, everyone, to the Autism Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky, and we're back with Johanna Stavitz discussing improving access to high-quality behavioral services for children with emotional and behavioral disorders. Here's where we left off. You look at just naturally how we all should and could be operating throughout our day. It's if we're forced into something, you see those reactions, the fight or flight, and, and we're not able to use coping mechanisms to self-soothe or to kind of give ourselves that time to kind of decompress before making a decision. And if somebody doesn't have all the skills to make the right decision, you put them in a context where now their anxiety's up and they don't know how to respond and yet they have to give a quick response, you're going to see the not the best of them. You're going to see That's at fair. times maybe even the worst of their decision making at that time. Um, because they still have to get their personal needs met. And that's what they're thinking about at that moment. And it, it's interesting how we don't always treat each other the same way that we would when we're intervening with somebody. And it's nice to see this blend and how it's described. Um, I did have a question. I mean, as, as you're talking through this, I'm trying in my head just to kind of make those bullets. But relationship is yeah. key. Empowerment is key. When you're looking at being able to establish some of these skills and simplifying the the ability to be able to be empowered through the process, historically is that we've done a lot more deficit-based assessments, deficit-based kind of planning than we have strength-based. Is that another change through when we're actually using an enhanced choice model, when we're getting to the intervention component, that we really should be putting more time and energy is where are the strengths for this person to be able to access these new behaviors versus how do I go and fix everything? Then I put yeah. fix in quotations. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and yeah, this is another thing where I, I'm hopeful this is where we're headed. And right now I'm only doing that informally and I can't even claim I've thought about it in the way that you just described. But I'm, as you asked that question, I'm like, oh, that's why we've kind of learned to do a student interview. You know, and, and again, I'm working with populations who are conversational. So I can do this. And I recognize that that is not true for every recipient of behavior change services. But um, I'll interview the student and I'm like, hey, what are you into? What are you good at? Um, you know, what are the areas of struggle? Uh, what, how do you feel about that? Yeah, would it be cool if you were felt as comfortable with that as you did with math, which you told me you're, you're good at and you enjoy? And so we, we learned something about what they're proud of and what, what they perceive their strengths to be. And that can help in a couple different ways. Um, one is that during the intervention process, at some point after they learn to ask nicely, and after they learn to accept being told no sometimes when they ask nicely, even though they ask nicely, then they have to start doing some stuff. But we like to be really gentle with how we start increasing the amount of stuff they have to do. And it's really nice to know what they're already good at because then we can throw in <laughs> some, some requirements that they cooperate with us, but in ways that they are highly likely to cooperate with or tasks they're really likely to do with no problem. And that really eases the process of dialing up the intensity of how much work they have to cooperate with. So this knowing their strengths helps to us to identify like kind of like easy task demands that we can program intentionally. Um, and it also knowing their strengths also helps us with this kind of conversation that we've started to learn to have. The students have taught us that this is a helpful thing to do. 
um, which is similar to the one I described having with teachers where it's like, what do you care about? Like, essentially, what are your values? And that might be a big picture thing, like I want to get better at reading. Or it might be like, I just want to be able to play with my stuff and have no one mess with me. And it's like, okay, either one of those is going to work for me. Um, and and that that comes nicely out of the strengths conversation and, and it can be a good jumping off point. But then we can invoke that, you know, to help to motivate the student in a given moment. What's important to you in this given moment? Well, you might have forgotten that you want to get better at reading and I can use language to bring that to the present. If I know that you care about getting better at reading and that you're really good at math and so I can say, hey, what did it take to get good at math? It took practice. Here we are. Are you willing to, to try these uh, this reading activity and so on and so forth? Yeah. Um, so those are a couple ways that strengths-based, um, at least interviewing and formal assessment is starting to help me in my practice. Absolutely. And I mean, when I think just back to doing basic consults uh, for ABA principals in the schools 10, 15 years ago, it was tough to be able to get all that information, help to provide guidance, help to provide support. So you have teachers that are managing 25, 30 students in a class with um, hopefully some, some technical support through paraprofessionals and through just other resources that are available to them with the district. But even the training process to push that out is hard. Um, now, now we're kind of flipping the script a little bit because it's mm -hmm. new techniques with enhanced choice model, which means that there's more training, more support that needs to be provided on helping to guide through challenging situations and provide not just that on the job opportunity, but also some of the recaps of, okay, so what just happened? How do we maybe adapt or modify? Are there different staff training techniques that are being used? Because you can't be everywhere. Your program can't help out every single district in uh, Tennessee or even Nashville. I mean, as, as I mean, staffing is hard. How do you make it so that this is scalable so that people can start using these techniques? Um, what a great question and segue into to something else I've been working on, uh, which is computer-based training for staff implementers of complex behavior interventions like this one. And and the, the reasons I've landed on computer-based training are really practical in nature and about the problem that you're describing, which is, you know, uh, training takes a lot of time and people. <laughs> um, and historically, we've used behavioral skills training, which can be done in a group, but isn't often oftentimes done in one-on-one, -on -one, like, you know, whether it's a behavior analyst um, or or even an RBT training a parent, um, but it's somebody who knows how to do the procedure, really explicitly teaching someone who doesn't know how to do the procedure to do it until they can do it to a certain level of um, integrity, you know, adherence to the rules of the procedure. So um, that's great. And, you know, we tried that first. Um, I, I was working with a doc student and she's, no, she's a, she's Dr. Marnie Pollock now, but at the time she was a doctoral student and we were working with these classroom teams and it was time to transfer the intervention to the classroom. And we said, okay, guys, we're going to train you up. And we, we did use a single case design to evaluate our training and boy, did we have to change our training plan <laughs> because it just took forever. Um, and different people needed different things. You know, some people needed more practice in one area than another. Um, ultimately, everybody needed us to break down the procedures into smaller pieces. 
And it just took many, many hours of time for each staff member. It took time for us. Um, but I think uh, another part of that is also that when whenever you're using staff time, like there's all this complexity in how to get their role filled while they're out receiving training. So it's not just like paying for their extra time. It's like what happens while they're being trained? So, you know, uh, we next time we were called on to train a group of people, we said we got to first of all, I don't want to just keep repeating all the same verbal stuff again. Can we at least record that part and let them watch it on their own? And then we thought, well, if we're going to do that, how much more of this can we do asynchronously? Um, and so that's what led to more work with computer race training. And, uh, you know, there are benefits to that. Um, it can be as effective as traditional training. It's it can be cost effective um, and it it can be more preferred. People like to do stuff on their couch in their pajamas <laughs> um, and that's going to cut into the problem of what do we do with your clients while you are receiving training and then it actually can be done at a different time. So I'm yeah. working on that. I can say more about it, but I thought you might have some comments. No, I, I honestly all of those points, I, they're so well taken and when I think about some of the things that maybe even didn't mention that have just as much impact is that it's not going to be tied to can you afford this? So you're breaking down socioeconomic barriers. You're getting treatments into places that maybe were underserved historically. I would imagine there's got to be a way to be able to look at cultural language barriers with these trainings long term to be able to say, you know, can I actually start tailoring it a little bit more to be able to meet the demographic need of this particular population because as much as we behavioral work might be supportive for most communities you still have to take in some of the cultural nuance in order to make it something that is going to be effective so i think all of that sounds like it's it's something that it makes it so that your work that you're putting into your research and that you've put into effective implementation of care now has a broader scope that others can now start to take advantage of. So I love what you're doing. Um, oh, where, you. where do you see this going? I mean, is there a way to eventually be able to get some, I don't know, just uh, oversight done this way? Do you do any sort of video observations to kind of say, hey, you know, this is send me back some of the feedback so we can give you some internal things. Is there virtual reality components that could be built in this? Over yeah, time? that is a big question, because that's the thing with computer based training. That's like that's exactly the thing. It's like, how do people practice and how do we actually evaluate their ability to implement the procedure with fidelity. So um, with computer-based instruction, if it's entirely asynchronous, it's great because it has all those other benefits, but we have to come up with substitutes for the learner, the trainee, actually delivering the intervention, which is the goal of the training. And that's pretty weird. So my research is really focused right now on what kinds of substitutes can we use? Does it help if we do kind of a fill in the blank? We show a little video clip of the client doing something and we say, okay, you tell me what does the therapist need to do next after we've you know, provided some instruction on what has to happen. Um, that's one type of practice opportunity that's a sort of a substitute for actually implementing. Another one is, here's a video clip. You tell me, was this an example or a non-example of the therapist handling this particular aspect of treatment? And if 
if not, why? If so, why? And, you know, there are ways to, and, and all of that can be programmed. So it can be done via CBI where them actually trying it and getting feedback can't be currently, but AI may get us there soon. Um, and then another, another way that this is done in the literature and that I'm looking at is what if they watch someone else implement and they're scoring that person's adherence to the, the protocol? Um, do these things, do any of those things work better than one another? Um, or just if we throw them all in there and put that out, is, is, is that effective? And it is, um, but it's less clear which of those types of practice opportunities matter. Um, so at the end of the day, one, we have to have a way to kind of check people out. So it's one thing in research that's built in because we're evaluating it. So we see people and we have them role play the procedure and we measure how well they do it. But if you're going to roll out a CBI, a computer-based instruction program in practice, like you got to have some plan for actually evaluating um, the ability of the person to do the thing, to implement the intervention, uh, especially because even though using a randomized control trial, we've, you know, we learn, okay, it's effective. It does increase treatment integrity. It increases the likelihood they meet mastery criteria, but that doesn't mean that every person does. So we certainly can't just like throw it out there and say, cool, everybody's going to implement this perfectly. So that's those are logistical problems that still need to be solved. I think virtual reality can be really helpful. I think within CBI, we can do some programming um, to, to make it more adaptive. Like if anybody's taken the GRE, it's you might remember that if in this, I don't even know if this is true anymore, but it used to be that if you got an item right, you're going to get a harder item. If you got an item wrong, you get an easier item and so on and so forth. And that idea can be applied within a computer-based training so that we're really meeting the needs of the learner and they're not proceeding until they've really gotten the prerequisite skills and really mastered the skill at this level before a new one is required. So I, I hope that is the future, but yeah, there's, there's no getting around the um, person power that's gonna be necessary ultimately to verify that somebody can appropriately implement a treatment package. And it's yeah. hard because these packages are pretty complex. They have a lot mm -hmm. of parts. That's the, that's the funny thing is that like when we take a step back is that we're asking for family members, community members, uh, teachers, uh, clinicians, uh, technicians. You're asking for everybody to try and be able to be on the same page with some of these techniques. So it takes as much as it is just to prove out that something works as research, it takes almost as much time to prove that something works out as an implemented practice and that it can be trained on and that it can be scaled. And, and the way that you all are adapting through this and working with your community partners to get this in place, I, I think is going to be able to give a lot of promise to other people to say, hey, you know what, it is doable. And if I can do something better, why not make that change now if it's going to help so many different people through the process? I'd love to just kind of, before we wrap up, I want to hear, you know, what sort of feedback you're getting from, you know, the recipients of the care, from the people that are actually delivering the care, um, and then maybe even from family members and, and, and just people who are observing it from the outside at times, like what is the feedback that they're giving about the change in your, in your concept or in, in the theoretical position that you use to get to where we are in the implementation of the new model? Mm. So what, what is their reaction, even aside from the behavior change that comes about, but also like these kind of um, 
philosophical differences in how we're doing things compared to how we did them a couple yeah, years ago. And even the experiential piece of how it feels going through this process now. Do they feel like, hold on, I feel less burdened. Like I feel like, hey, you know, this is a lighter environment. It's not as, I don't, I, I don't know yeah. what they're feeling. And that's why I'm kind of curious, you know, what the experience yeah. feels like. I think for school staff, it still seems a little weird and fluffy. And I think that it's just going to take more time because they are in the trenches and, you know, behavior problems are like the biggest, one of the biggest drivers of teacher burnout. So you imagine the interactions happening there. So I think that's going to, that's a, a frontier <laughs> that is still there. Although that said, I mean, there are many educators who who love it and find it a relief to be able to be like, okay, cool. I can also, I can just back off a little bit. This keeps a lid on things. Cool. Um, and, and I haven't done this work myself, but um, there's the whole universal protocol approach, which essentially is comes before intervention or enhanced choice. And it's just about providing all possible reinforcers to a child so that there is no dangerous behavior, and then sort of gradually incorporating the opportunity for that child to start to participate in some skill training. Um, and so, and, and I know that the educators who participated in that process have really appreciated what it has done and that has worked quickly. Although I say that having only seen some data from out of practice, like that's not published yet, but I, I hope it will be soon. Um, but then I, I think um, I don't work as much with families, but when I do, parents seem to have a different reaction toward offering all these choices than even educators do. And I think that might just be because parents are a little more in touch with the social and emotional costs of a child having, being a little less empowered to use your very helpful word there. Um, and so parents are kind of, their reinforcers are different with respect to the child's progress. Um, and so that, that is usually received pretty favorably and, um, usually leads to some pretty good conversations about how to extend some procedures into home if the parent so chooses. Um, and then another group of people who is who I've spent a lot of time participating in this conversation with is graduate students who are going to go out and do this work. And they are thrilled that, that we have these new options that they're eager to try out. Nothing's perfect, you know, I've had, you know, <laughs> long, you know, lapses where, you know, we kind of are at a plateau with a student and have to wait it out. And, you know, it's not like this is just the panacea, but but graduate students are really excited because they are here to help kids. Um, and they're very in touch with the disability advocacy communities and the concerns about ABA and really want to know. They're like, okay, on one hand, I understand that there's a lot of evidence supporting this and this can be a way to help kids. But I also am like really hearing these criticisms and I am concerned about trauma and I am concerned about the internal experience of the child as they participate in treatment. And, and I want to know what ABA's answer is to that. And so this is a nice way to, to be able to have those conversations. And I think I, I'd be remiss in not mentioning that also um, the uh, relational frame theory and ACT literature and the the curriculum for children that is a kind of a variation on ACT, except identify move that Mark Dixon developed, like those things are also really important to that conversation too, even though I haven't talked much about that today. When we've been talking about identifying values and kind of bringing them into the present moment and teaching children and, and using, you know, this approach with adults to make decisions based on those values, that's all 
borrowed from that domain. Um, but yeah, so I think it's it's very exciting. I think future practitioners are probably the most amenable. <laughs> um, and then other groups are kind of like, well, this is new to me, but there are aspects of it I really like. Um, and so I think the better we get as analysts at doing it well, um, the the more embedded just ongoing opportunities for choice will be. And also, so you, um, okay, I'll, I'll pause there. I'll pause there. There's one other thing I hope we can get to, but if we don't, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just as we go through all these questions we're asking ourselves, and you hit on, I mean, one of the biggest ones is always, you know, how can we start to match the priorities of those who receive the care? And now the feedback they're giving, because now we have 30 years of, 40 years of ABA care that's been applied pretty regularly for, for a lot of people. It's now we have the chance to be able to take that information and say, how do we make ourselves better? Where can we continue to move? And how do we do this in a coordinated effort to make sure that we're hearing and valuing and empowering those who have gone through the process so we can learn from it? Uh, I feel like that's the most important thing in life is to learn from things as you go through them to continuously make better better. Um, where is the where are the resources and where is the opportunity? Because uh, you have some of it at your disposal being a part of an academic research institute. It's not everybody has this, but they'd love to apply it if they have the option. So there's gotta be school districts out there being like, all right, I, I love what you're saying. How in the world do I even take the first step to getting this put into my program in my oh, school? Yeah. So above my pay grade, Jeff, but <laughs> but I think a starting point is um, and I feel like a school district wouldn't appreciate me saying this, but I think advocacy can make a really big difference. So if a parent is out there listening to this conversation, one thing you can do is start to push for your district to find the funding to provide these supports. And there are professional advocates who can help with that. But I think that if if the pressure is there and the specific ask is there, um, the funds are more likely to come, uh, especially if, if, you know, based on the the research that's out there and also um, forthcoming gives you uh, adequate justification. You know, there's enough value added like this. This is a necessary service. Um, and I think that's going to require some interdisciplinary collaboration as well. I think that if we are as behavior analysts working with school psychologists who do formal psychoeducational evaluation and are learning about the um, the student in ways that we are not as behavior analysts. So they might be looking at, in addition to academic skills, but um, anxiety, depression screeners, all those other things. Like then, then we can start to make the argument that it's really, really important that we have components of our treatment that uh, make space, or at least our uh, our due diligence at not worsening the kind of anxiety they might be, come with being required to participate in intervention. Um, so. So, I, yeah, I think we can try to be more strategic about that. Those are a couple things that are truly off the top of my head because scaling up is so hard and research should be able to help with that. And I'd like to see more research at that level going on. Um, but even with research, doing these intensive individualized interventions is is expensive because it requires somebody who's highly trained to be there for just hours and hours and hours. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. I my honestly my hope, and this is like sort of a prediction, but also I might be a crazy person, 
is that one day BCBAs will operate like speech language pathologists in schools where we are employed in numbers. And when you have a behavioral assessment intervention need, you go to the BCBA, just like if you have speech and language need, you go to the SLP. You're not saying, let's build the capacity of the teacher to do some articulation assessments and mm -hmm. start to teach articulation skills. That's that's crazy. That's what an SLP does. Um, and so I think we need to start taking some of that burden off teachers. Um, and that's just going to be part of a bigger, more systemic change toward investing resources in a, in a smarter not harder way absolutely and, and just the i the and i'll thank you for saying this but that interdisciplinary work i think is extremely important and just hearing the excitement that your grad students have i'd almost kind of put the challenge on them right now because i think that we have done a lot on looking at outcomes as far as uh, objective did we achieve this particular goal through the process and I think that that's very important, but I think that there's a layer to it that we could be adding on, which is during that process, how was the quality of life affected? How was the social, emotional and components that maybe we don't always look at? How does the whole package pan out as we're as we're doing our treatment and maybe looking at some of those evaluative measures of something like looking at the choice model and and some of the other interventions that are coming to the forefront right now and saying, you know, are we creating a better treatment package that's more holistic if we're actually looking at some of these evaluative measures correctly? And maybe that is the challenge I'm going to give to the grad students. So they're yes, out there. I'd love I to will see too. <laughs> <laughs> I'll repeat that in class tomorrow night. And the holistic is the word that I've been using as well. It's like we cannot only people use language. And language interacts with the impact of contingency on behavior. And B.F. Skinner knew that. You know, he wrote that in the 50s. So we we can't keep operating as though the consequences of behavior are the only thing that matter to human behavior change. And not only that, that's just looking at it from an efficacy standpoint, what's going to work and help the child learn the skills they need. Also, people have thoughts and feelings. That's how language manifests internally. And yes, it's behavior, but we don't we aren't thinking about that when we intervene most often as behavior analysts. My training didn't involve enough about that. So in addition to um, what what did you say the bullet points were relationship empowerment? And I would say there's there's got to be empathy and compassion. And, and I know this is it's not a new idea or my idea, but I think if we're really putting that at the fore of our assessment and treatment planning, we are going to take a more holistic approach because we are going to be thinking about the thoughts and feelings of our clients in addition to the behavior that we can see with our eyes without having to ask. So That's certainly holistic. Well, Joey, it's been an absolute pleasure just learning from you today. And I I I'm very excited about all the work that you all have been putting out there because even as a clinician is the day I start thinking I know it all is the day that I become less and less of a quality clinician and that you all are pushing us to kind of change some of the uh, perceptions of you know where where we need to be putting value and maybe changing some of the intervention strategies over time and hearing more of the voices so Thank you for doing that. And I hope you continue to encourage others to change and to improve the lives of those that they're supporting. Thank you. And I'm to the extent I'm encouraging anybody, it's because I'm being pushed by my students and the advocacy groups and, and what I'm hearing. And I know the same goes for you. And I've heard you're an excellent research collaborator. So watch out. I might be. <laughs> <laughs>
Much appreciated. Well, thanks again. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.